Hi, it's Debbie. I'm so excited to tell you about our new sponsor, Uplift Desks. As a therapist, I sit a lot while I work, and if I sit all day, I feel pretty terrible by the end of the day. So I love to change things up by standing sometimes while I'm working at my computer. Whether I'm checking emails or preparing for my next podcast interview, a standing desk helps me stay alert and feel better at the end of the day. Uplift Desks has a terrific selection of standing desks and other office furniture to help you work better and live healthier. You can customize your configuration to your body and your workspace. They offer free shipping, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. And every desk purchase includes a free accessory. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Go to upliftdesk.com POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com POTC to get 5% off your entire order. ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we're three clinical psychologists, Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen, and we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mentioned in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Dr. Diana Hill, and I'm here talking with Dr. Elizabeth Boyer, who is a sports psychologist in Seattle, Washington, and I'm really excited to talk with you today. I'm excited to be here. How is it in Seattle? It's good. Yeah. What's is it? Is it rainy and all those stories that they say about it? It is. It's cold, and most people are looking for a place to run away to the sunshine right about now. <laughs> yeah. But when it's sunny, it's so beautiful with the snow-capped mountains, and um, so it's it's been beautiful as well. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to talk with you about the topic of sports psychology, which is an area of psychology that I have so little experience in and um, want to learn more and I'm interested about what your life looks like on a day-to-day basis and working with athletes and teams and also some of the challenges and some of the cutting-edge practices that you use in your practice. So I'm excited. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Boyer is in private practice at Northwest Performance Psychology in uh, Seattle, Washington. She's a licensed psychologist and certified sports psychology consultant, and she's really committed to helping individuals maximize their potential enjoyment in life. She's worked with individuals and teams from youth recreational to elite and professional levels, and works on enhancing performance, team efficacy, cohesion, and overall well-being. She has a special professional and research interest in the benefits of sports participation and physical activity for women and girls, and works um, and serves as on the advisory board for Z Girls, which is a nonprofit organization working to empower young girls in sport. And she has a history of herself being an athlete. She was competed as a gymnast in the Seattle suburb of Bellevue and then coached at Bellevue High School Gymnastics for four seasons prior to moving into the arena of sports psychology. So she received her BS in psychology at University of Washington, coming back home there to Seattle. Yes. And 
uh, then had the, her uh, master's in education in counseling and developmental studies with an emphasis in sports psychology at Boston University, followed by her PhD at University of North Texas with, again, an emphasis in sports psychology. And then where I met uh, Liz was at UC Davis, where she completed her postdoctoral fellowship and then went on to be the coordinator of applied sports psychology program there. And how many years did you work at UC Davis post, after postdoc? After postdoc, I think it was there um, three years. Three years, okay. So working with the teams there at UC Davis and um, coordinating also the sports psychology training program as well. Yes. So I, as I mentioned, I met you when I was on internship. And so in, in the field of psychology, when you're getting your, your doctorate, on the way, you do your um, years at the university where you're getting your doctorate from, but then you go on a year-long internship before you get your degree. And I was doing that at UC Davis and working in the eating disorder of this area where I met Liz working in um, sports psychology on her postdoc. And it was one of my best years ever, in part because of you. I loved um, it. It was so fun being with you there. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's always been a, kind of a curious thing. What is sports psychology? And um, maybe you can just sort of describe to me, starting with what is it that you do as a sports psychologist that may be different from a traditional psychologist? Sure. Um, yeah, sports psychology um, is really a really um, vast profession. I mean, it covers quite a bit of different aspects of the athletic experience. And so not only does um, it cover topics that looks at um, the psychological factors that are a part of participating in sport and contribute to great performances, um, but it also looks at um, what are the benefits to the overall person and developmental benefits that you might get from participation in sports. We think about um, teamwork and leadership skills and being able to bounce back from mistakes. Um, some of those are skills that get to be developed within a healthy sport environment. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also all kinds of psychological consequences that result in participation in sport and that mm -hmm. can be to um, disordered eating um, and injury and um, burnout mm -hmm. transitions that occur, you know, moving up levels or um, moving out of sport that can cause some kind of distress for individuals. So um, there's a, a clinical component as well um, in working with athletes because they're experiencing something on a clinical basis that's related to their sport. Mm -hmm. So as a sports psychologist, are the athletes considered your client or is the team your client or the coach or how, do, how does that work in terms of, I'm also thinking about confidentiality and issues yes. around, <laughs> around that. If, you're, if I can't see two friends, how can you see two teammates and keep confidentiality? I and mean, that seems like that'd be really a challenge. It is a real challenge. And the answer to the first question is, you know, who's the client yeah. is sort of everyone, all. It depends on how you're um, working with a team or who's hiring you. So when I was at the university, in a college setting, I'm serving the athlete population, but I'm also there as a um, support resource to the coaches um, and athletic staff. I was also there to provide trainings and education to the athletic staff on issues that are um, 
you know, important to athletes and their psychological well-being. Um, and so sometimes, and then I was also there to help teams perform well too, or maybe just to, maybe there was something going on within the team dynamic, um, or maybe there was some need for increasing, you know, maybe the cultural competence um, and the, making it a, a safer environment um, for everybody on the team. So there's lots of different ways that um, you can be helping and working with in a athletic environment um, and organization. And if I was there to help with a team's performance, the team is my client as mm-hmm. a whole. Mm-hmm. All of the athletes are individual potential clients mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then the coaches. And so you brought up the idea of confidentiality and multiple relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, that does get tricky <laughs> because you might, it would be completely possible that I would have two different individual athletes on my caseload who are both teammates who might even be in competition for the same uh, role or position on the team mm-hmm. um, and is there to enhance of their experiences and for them to be able to be as consistent and um, confident as possible and yet um, knowing that you know it's very real that I'm also working with another person so um in and that they they would know that you know they might know that I'm working with both of them because they've talked or mm-hmm. or that they just know that that's a possibility and so that's definitely something that gets talked about when we're first starting a relationship with a team mm-hmm. um, here are all the different ways that I can be a resource and this is all the different ways you know that then these are some things to think about mm-hmm. um and what about confidentiality between the team uh, athletes and the, and the coach? Because that seems like that would be something that, say, say an athlete was struggling with eating disorder and they don't want necessarily their coach to know about that or they're struggling with the substance use. Or do you, is that usually set up ahead of time that you hold that confidentiality? Or are there some areas outside of like risk to yourself that you'd have to break confidentiality? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, the way I've worked is they set that up ahead of time um, and let the coach know, or it might be the performance development director, depending on um, what kind of a team it is. But I'll let them know that my um, first priority is to the athlete's well-being. Mm-hmm. And um, so my first priority is maintaining confidentiality mm-hmm. with the with the athletes, with the individual athletes, because if they think I'm going to share everything with the coach, then they're not going to come to me and I'm not going to be helpful to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the coaches understand that and I'll let them know, you know, if there's something that I think is really important that you need to know, always try to empower the athlete to share that information with the coach directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's something that the coach asks me about and is trying to get, you know, answers around, I'll refer them back to the athlete and mm-hmm. say that's like, you know, it sounds like maybe you want to have a good conversation with the athlete, um, but that I will not break confidentiality. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds with, similar yeah. to when you're working maybe with a adult child, like a college student child and their parents and they want, you know, they're paying for treatment, but you have the confidentiality right. and they're calling you asking how their child is doing that same kind of line that you can hold um, and always referring back to talking directly to the client themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some situations, you know, disordered eating is one in particular where, you know, you definitely want to be aware of the injury risk that Mm -hmm. 
is there as well. Um, and so I'm always trying to advocate, you know, um, health and well-being and sharing that with the athlete. And this is my concern. And this is why I think it would be good for you to um, talk with your coach about this and, and always trying to allow them to be the one to disclose information. Um, and I, I won't disclose information if, if they don't, they won't, they don't yeah. want it. Can you, since we're on the topic of disordered eating, can you speak a little bit to the female athlete triad, which is something that's spoken up about a lot, and also just how disordered eating shows up in sport and maybe how it's different than um, disordered eating outside of sport? Yeah, there's you know some belief that, um, or even some research to show that athletes might um, have some protective factors um, from engaging in disordered eating because we find that there might be higher levels of confidence and hmm. um, uh, self-esteem and other things that might be protective for, um, against developing an eating disorder. And then there's also unique aspects of the athletic environment that can actually increase the risk mm -hmm. of developing disordered eating. Um, and this is for both females and males. And mm -hmm. I do think that that's a, an important point is research and our interventions have um, sort of ignored the male experience right. up in more recently. So that's something we're we're needing to pay more attention to. But um, but the natural sort of competitiveness and perfectionism um, and some of the um, personality characteristics that help athletes excel mm -hmm. uh, and get a lot of reinforcement from coaches can be the kinds of, um, you know, factors that might increase the risk of um, engaging in disordered eating um, and coaches don't really realize that because they're so excited that they're putting in this extra effort or mm -hmm. they're doing extra workouts or they're being hypercritical um, and wanting to improve and and that continues to get reinforced with praise right. and rewards and yet it might be reinforcing a maladaptive um, pattern or mm -hmm. style so that's that's maybe one way that coaches miss, um, yeah. you know, what's actually going on for the athlete. Mm -hmm. um, we know that there are sports that um, there's a perceived and a real um, benefit to um, having a certain aesthetic um, you know, look, a certain body type. Um, and so those Sports like synchronized swimming or gymnastics or ice skating um, might be more at risk mm -hmm. because you know as a performance benefit mm -hmm. to maintain a particular weight or maintain a particular look, and coaches can buy into that mm -hmm. um, to promote that um, kind of belief. Mm -hmm. um, and then that there are sports that um, have uniforms that are more revealing. We find that increases hmm. negative image. Hmm. Um, and there's some, you know, um, activism around that for some sports, but there's maybe not a need, for example, for women's volleyball to wear <laughs> uh, oh yeah. a hugger um, because there doesn't seem to be a performance need or benefit mm -hmm. to that. Um, we don't see the men wearing um, body-hugging volleyball uniforms and yeah. um, so if there was a performance benefit we would certainly see males doing that right <laughs> but so so there's certain components to to the sport environment that i think can increase that um risk mm -hmm. 
and um, and then there's practices as well, like weigh-ins and um, measuring body right. mass and right. things that, that can increase their anxiety or their um, chance of dieting or engaging in some kind of yeah. compensation. Can you can you speak to the female athlete triad piece in terms of what that is? Because yeah. I know that's mentioned a lot in um, when people are talking about sports and eating disorders. Yeah, and I think we need to talk more about it, actually, so I appreciate you bringing that up. So the female athlete triad is um, uh, when a female athlete um, is out of balance in terms of their energy availability, Mm -hmm. um, so that they're expending more calories and more energy than they're taking in. And when they do that... um, then they're at risk of going into um, or having that contribute to menstrual dysfunction Mm -hmm. and uh, might have a loss of period um, or, you know, be amenorrheic. And then that can increase the chance of um, losing bone density. Mm -hmm. Um, And that then puts them at a risk of injury. And so all all these factors are... um, it's like a triangle. That's why they call it the triad. All three of those are factors that are interrelated and, and affecting each other. And so sometimes if an athlete is in, engaging in disordered eating, then they have a, a lower energy availability than is required for their sport. Mm-hmm. And then they can become amenorrheic and, and be losing some bone density, um, losing the calcium, and they can be at risk for an injury. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also find that some uh, athletes don't realize that they're not taking in enough calories and that that happens accidentally. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for any practitioner, it's important to ask questions. If you have an athlete on your caseload, it's just ask some questions about menstrual functioning Mm -hmm. because there's a real myth out there that, um, well, if you don't have a period as an athlete, that means you're working really hard. Um, And they used to think that actually it was because of um, the, body mass index mm-hmm. was too low and that triggered the amenorrhea, but it's actually mm-hmm. the, the energy availability being too low. So it's not about body mass, but it's about how many calories they're expending compared to what they're getting in. Thank you so much for speaking to that, Liz, because many a time I've had a client that is um, struggling with an eating disorder and in a normal weight range, but not getting their period. And maybe doing a lot of, like, maybe they're running a lot or doing, you know, exercising a lot or expending a lot of energy. And that may be part of what's contributing to that. And there's this myth out there that you lose your period if you're, one, one that if you have your period, then you then you don't have any disorder, which is a myth, you right. know. But then, right. too, if you don't have your period, but you're within a normal, normal weight range, then it doesn't really matter. Oh, good, I just don't get my period. As opposed right. to this is really being a sign that there's something going on physiologically in your body that is that is saying, okay, this is not healthy, what, you know, what you're doing. Um, your body is saying it's overstressed, and so therefore it will not menstruate. And there's right. downstream effects for that later on if you don't have um, that bone density, um, as well as during, you know, if you're, imagine if you're an athlete, you know, and you're jumping on off of things and, you know, landing hard on your bones, that could be pretty risky as well. Yes. Yeah. And I think coaches reinforce, like they, they might see it as, oh, that's a good thing. You're, you're working hard enough to not have your period, like yeah. that it's some wow. indicator of 
um, that that's normal because that's what happens when you're, um, you know, just training this much. Mm -hmm. But um, but I always share with people, well, actually, that's a signal that something's wrong um, rather than something's right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's real um, something that really has to shift in the minds of parents and coaches that, mm -hmm. that that's signal that you're training correctly that's actually a signal that something is is incorrect something's uh, something's wrong your body's saying I can't I have to shut down certain um, mechanisms here because I have to conserve energy right. um, and that that like you said has longer term effects on the body in other ways but we also see that there's an effect on performance mm -hmm. and so some interesting research actually that UC Davis was doing in their sports med um, and exercise physiology program that was looking at um, the um, ways that amenorrheic female racers, runners, mm -hmm. were able to finish races compared to those who had regular menstrual functioning and that there's something about not um, having your menstrual functioning that um, keeps the adrenaline, that extra kick that you need at the end of a race, for example, from being able to be released. Wow. And so that that actually could have um, not just health, and of course we're more concerned about the health, um, but that there's also a performance yeah. consequence. Yeah. And that that's important because then that speaks more volume to the coaches um, right and so that's a that's a way to get the better selling point but there right sorry about this. Yeah. yes but I I always I always ask about menstrual functioning um with everybody that I meet with mm -hmm. um and explain why and I always um refer to a nutritionist as well um just to make sure that they're getting the um proper nutrition that athletes need um to help keep them, you know, healthy from, from injury and to also try to help prevent them from developing disordered eating habits as they're trying to regulate it on their own. So that's one area that you really have specialty in. And I know that when we were working at UC Davis together, we worked together and had some overlap in, in the area of eating disorders, which was really fun. Um, I think we led some workshops together, body image workshops and other things. And it feels like such an important specialty to have in, in the area of sport, because I imagine there's a lot of sports psychologists that don't have the background in training and eating disorders and maybe can't spot what you can spot or know the appropriate, you know, questions to ask around that and referrals to make. And then yeah. the other area that it seems like you're getting more interested in is around injury. We were talking a bit about that, of having a interest yeah. in, in athletes and injury. So what are you doing there? What, what's your interest there and what kind of work are you doing in that arena? Well, and I think that they're so related to the disordered eating because we know that, um, well, if you're engaging in disordered eating, then you're at higher risk for an injury, but also injured athletes are at a higher risk of developing an eating disorder as part of the response yes. to injury. Um, because what can happen is, um, Athletes are out of practice. Their schedule has changed quite a bit, the intensity of their their training. And so then um, they might uh, start to either engage in some kind of disordered eating habits as part of their coping mechanism with the stress and reaction to the injury or to the pain um, or to the trauma, whatever that was, that how that injury occurred. Um, but then they also might use compensatory behaviors because they're I'm not able to work out as much and they get fears about gaining weight and um, try to manage their their weight in that way as well. So so it's a risky time. Yeah. 
And what I what led me to be more interested in supporting athletes who are injured is I just feel like there's um, a real lack of um, services that we we provide in this area. Um, it seems um, there's so much opportunity to support athletes in different ways, um, and so. One way um, is really to help educate physical therapists um, and um, help them kind of look for signs and symptoms of, you know, some negative reactions to the injury or the rehab process. So um, things that I've already mentioned, you know, maybe engaging in some kind of maladaptive coping, but maybe development of depression or anxiety, um, listening for loss of confidence, um, being afraid of the pain and so then not rehabbing, mm-hmm. um, sticking to their rehab regimen. So I think I think there's ways we can, as sports psychologists, can help educate and empower physical therapists mm-hmm. to provide mm-hmm. some more um, listening referrals uh, um, yeah. to the that they're working with. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to incorporate the same mental skills that we teach athletes for um, enhanced performances to incorporate that into their rehab. Do you have an um, example, example of that? Of what would be a so skill you teach? So doing some relaxation exercises or some mindfulness exercises even before you go into rehab so that um, you're more able to be more relaxed, you might be able to handle the pain a little bit more, tolerate the pain, mm-hmm. which might lead you to more reps, more extension um, as you're getting your treatments done. Mm-hmm. Um, might increase your uh, adherence to mm-hmm. going if you're not quite as anxious or you don't experience it to be as painful or distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to try to um, have athletes use imagery. So imagery or visualization is a more common term for it. But um, you know, we teach athletes to really imagine their their physical skills or being in an athletic setting, uh, practicing seeing themselves be successful or practicing themselves learning a new technique or a new skill. And that um, increases the muscle memory pathways and increases Mm -hmm. confidence, can increase motivation. So we see some benefits to performance, but I think that could also be helpful. Um, Research shows that it, it is for rehab so that if they're actually imagining doing their exercises, um, and, being successful in their rehab hmm. uh, that can increase motivation, but um, to actually rehab. But it's also something that while they're not able to practice or be able to do certain skills because of their injury, they're able to, if they're using that time to practice mental rehearsal, seeing it in their head, um, we think that, you know, that that has some ultimate benefit for when they return. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still some um, muscle memory triggering that's occurring as they're doing that and can help yeah. the transition ease. It also, it also seems like it would be really um, psychologically beneficial for the athlete that's injured to think that they're still working on it. You know, even if their body isn't, then they can still work on their mind. And, you know, and, and just thinking about times when I've been injured myself or unable to be as active in one arena of my life because of a physical thing, then yeah. 
it sort of also is the opportunity to be like, okay, well then I can go develop this area that is, you know, I can read more. It's an opportunity to do more stretching or, you know, yes. that if, if you ha- still have a sense of that you're moving forward and you're gaining skills, it can help with that motivation. So I like that. That's interesting. You're using the same skill set that they would be using with their team, but then yes. they're just using it towards the recovery. I, yeah. I'm also curious about this, the, the few times that I've worked with athletes, what I've been um, really kind of, what kind of shocked me was the degree to which the team was their, it, it was almost like the team was their identity over and above their individual. So it, it, in the collegiate level, they live with their teammates, their, you, you know, their parties are with their teammates, their, you know, everything is around their team, their social life, time away their summers are spent still training, you know, with yeah. their teammates in an online kind of way. And so yeah. if, if you are injured or maybe you're, maybe you're ending your athletic career for another reason, this psychological impact on your whole identity must be completely devastating. I mean, I, yeah. I can't imagine yeah. that transition for, That's for that. Well, yeah, the word I think of was, yeah, it can be really devastating um, because especially, you know, with an injury um, and, and depending on what kind of injury it is, but um, to lose your role on the team um, or have that change and, and if that was a big source of your worth and self-esteem and um, that that can, you know, be very difficult to watch somebody else step into that role and mm-hmm. and especially if you know the team either way if the team's really successful or if not then there can be a great sense of guilt a great sense of um like they're letting the, the team down in some way so there can be some shame um that they experience but mostly it's that they're removed from their team right. um, not at practice um and so they don't have that same uh, connection or even just that same time with their social circle yeah um, how, what do you do about that? I mean, how do you help people through that? Do you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we know the research tells us that social support is really important to better recovery outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one important thing for practitioners to listen for is, you know, where where else are they getting other social support? Um, who else mm-hmm. social support? So if they've withdrawn from their team, <clears throat> or sometimes they'll feel like, well, I can't call my teammates because they just, they'll just feel sorry yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, so they'll, they'll be doing their own withdrawing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the very real withdrawal that happens um, because they're not able to practice. You know, I, I try to encourage continuing to go to practice um, if they can to continue to um, attend, me- you know, team meetings and team functions and things like this. If they can um, I encourage coaches to try to give them an, an alternative role within the team, um, you know, whether that's, um, you know, could be taking on some kind of leadership mm-hmm. and some, um, but to, that, that can be helpful to help them find some way that they're still contributing um, or to help them get access to what are their other social networks. And like you said, when you have an injury, it's a time to kind of focus on something else Um if you can't do the activity that you were doing before, this is a time for them to expand um, some of their other interests and some of, and spend more time with some of their other social networks um, to create new ones mm-hmm. uh, to get connected with 
maybe ones that they haven't been able to spend as much time with before. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it seems like there's a lot of similarities and overlap there in terms of working with somebody with depression or someone that's been through some kind of trauma, traumatic event or some kind of life-changing event of looking at that concept of resilience and how we can move through this and maybe become more flexible and expansive as opposed to isolating and disconnected. And that, and that, that the isolation is just going to breed more depression, anxiety, worthlessness, feelings of worthlessness, shame, all of that. It's like that vicious cycle down. So, so yeah, that makes sense. And I'd love to offer, part of my goal will be to offer some support groups for athletes who are recovering and who are injured. And um, I've done that in the past in in different settings. And um, there's been um, some, some athletes have met that with, oh, that feels really good. And they welcomed being able to share their story with other athletes and not feeling quite alone. And then um, athletes can also be a hard group to get to come to something like that because then they'd have to, um, you know, admit some vulnerability um, and show others that they're, they're struggling with something. And um, that's not a perspective that's very reinforced within the athletic culture. So Mm -hmm. um, that can, that can keep them from seeking out, resources. Right. Um, right. So kind of stepping back and looking at the, the bigger, so you have these two special interests around eating disorder and injury and stepping back and looking at the bigger picture of sports psychology, what are some of like the current trends in, in sports psychology that you're seeing? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, we're seeing a huge increase in the use of and practice of mindfulness, mm-hmm. which, you know, is kind of every Everything. discipline psychology <laughs> that's having a big boom in that. Um, and it's funny because um, research and some books and authors in the past, you know, in the 70s wrote about mindfulness and it kind of got uh, looked at as, you know, tossed to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, now here we are um, circling back and, and realizing how important that is. So I think that's just something that um, I talk to athletes about. This is something that's really great for you, for your overall well-being, um, for your stress management in whatever situation you are in, um, a, a way to, you know, experience life more fully and be in the present moment. And I also think it happens to have a re- great benefit to your performance as well. Um, if you're more in the moment, um, you're less worried about um, your thoughts less stuck in overthinking. You can be more automatic in your movements and uh, allow your body to do what it's been trained to do and be able to execute and take risks and play better. So, um, so we're seeing just a huge increase in teaching athletes and coaches the importance of mindfulness and how to use that in their, um, incorporate that into their practices and, um, stuff. And I, I do think stress management is a really important um, topic, of course, that we're seeing in general psychology, general health, um, and is important for athletes. And for the two reasons we've talked um, more specifically today, that when we know that um, there's a stress injury relationship, and so that when athletes experience an acute injury, um, we look back and there tend to be some stressors that they're experiencing in the moment. So if yeah. we can help athletes have um, better coping skills just in life, 
that will transfer over when they're not um, as active in their sport, but that that would have a great benefit to their sport too. Um, but of course, concussions are a big topic yeah. in sport and sports psychology. So I think we're seeing um, also a big increase in the use of neuropsychologists mm-hmm. um, in sports psychology and working with athletes. And that's really exciting. And, and just some of the research in neuroscience um, mm-hmm. is really interesting too and and how we're understanding the brain and um, its impact on performance and concentration and uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. What would you like to see more of that maybe isn't showing up in current trends? Yeah, um, I'd love to see, well, as a field, we have some work to do to be culturally competent. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's uh, an area I'd love to see more research in. I'd love to see us addressing um, multicultural dynamics on teams and issues like power and oppression and how that's affecting team dynamics and ultimately experiences, satisfaction, performance. But I think just even with our field, we are not a very diverse um, group of practitioners. Mm-hmm. And and our research tends to... You mean sports um, psychologists are not very diverse group? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, so I think we've been slow to have our research also look at um, multicultural topics. Well, it's been wonderful to talk with you and see you and share a cup of tea with you. So good to see you too. Yeah. And it sounds like you're doing good work out there in Seattle. Is there anything else that you want to share that I didn't, didn't ask you about or um, put out there about sports psychology or about your work? I don't think so. I think the only other thing that I would share is that, um, you know, I think in the future it'll be synonymous with performance psychology. Mm. And that's a term that's being used more often to be a little bit broader in scope um, because um, we're, you know, being able to apply the same principles to lots of different kinds of populations that um, perform. And so that would be artists and musicians Mm -hmm. and um, executives and and things like that. But a a real trend has also been applying um, some of the same principles that we use with athletes within the military Mm -hmm. um, and then some other high risk occupations, firefighters, police officers, um, surgeons, some some of those things that have that uh, really high pressure to it. Um, And so I think just as we're trying to increase some clarity about what is sports psychology, I think it's important to say that it's it's also considered performance psychology and um, that that can be much broader um, than just working with the athlete population. Well, thank you so much again. It's so good to see you. And I wish you a full and vibrant um, practice there in Seattle. And I hope that we can talk again soon. Yes, I absolutely look forward to collaborating with you too sometime. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens. <laughs>